The Throne of Fire, Chapter 19, The Revenge of Bullwinkle, the Moose God. I should mention that Carter was wearing a skirt. Ha! You are not grabbing the microphone. It's my turn. He neglected to tell you that, but as soon as we entered the duat, our appearances changed, and we found ourselves wearing ancient Egyptian clothes. They looked quite good on me. My white silk gown shimmered. My arms were bedecked with gold rings and bracelets. True, the jeweled neck collar was a bit heavy, like one of those lead aprons you might wear for an x-ray at the dentist. And my hair was plated with enough hairspray to petrify a major god. But otherwise, I'm sure I looked rather alluring. Carter, on the other hand, was dressed in a man's skirt. A simple linen wrap with his crook and flail hanging from a utility belt sort of thing around his waist. His chest was bare except for a golden neck collar like mine. His eyes were lined with coal, and he wore no shoes. To ancient Egyptians, I'm sure he would have looked regal and warlike, a fine specimen of manhood. You see, I managed to say that without laughing. And I suppose... Carter wasn't the worst-looking guy with his shirt off, but that didn't mean I wanted to adventure through the underworld with a brother who was wearing nothing but jewelry and a beach towel. As we stepped into the sun god's boat, Carter immediately got a splinter in his foot. Why are you barefooted? I demanded. It wasn't my idea. He winced as he plucked a toothpick-sized piece of deck from between his toes. I guess because ancient warriors fought barefoot. Sandals got too slippery from sweat and blood and all. And the skirt? Let's just go, all right? That proved easier said than done. The boat drifted away from the docks, then got stuck in a backwater a few meters downstream. We began turning in circles. Tiny question, I said. Do you know anything about boats? Nothing, Carter admitted. Our tattered sail was about as useful as a ripped tissue. The oars were either broken or trailing uselessly in the water, and they looked quite heavy. I didn't see how the two of us could row a boat meant for a crew of 20, even if the river stayed calm. On our last trip through the Duat, the ride had been more like a roller coaster. What about those glowing balls of light? I asked. Like the crew we had on the Egyptian Queen. Can you summon some? Right, I grumbled. Throw the hard questions back to me. I looked around the boat, hoping to spot a button that read, Push here for glowing sailors. I saw nothing so helpful. I knew the sun god's bark once had a crew of lights. I'd seen them in my vision, but how to summon them? The tent pavilion was empty. The throne of fire was gone. The boat was silent, except for water gurgling through the cracks in the hull. The spinning of the ship was starting to make me sick. Then a horrible feeling crept over me. Tiny, dozen tiny voices whispered at the base of my skull. Isis, schemer, poisoner, traitor.
I realized my nausea wasn't just from the spiraling current. The entire ship was sending malicious thoughts my way. The boards under my feet, the railing, the oars and rigging, every part of the sun god's bark hated my presence. Carter, the boat doesn't like me, I announced. You're saying the boat has good taste? Ha, ha. I mean, it senses Isis. She poisoned Ra and forced him into exile, after all. This boat remembers. Well, apologize or something. Hello, boat, I said, feeling quite foolish. Sorry about the poisoning business, but you see, I'm not Isis. I'm Sadie Kane. Traitor, the voices whispered. I can see why you'd think so, I admitted. I probably have that Isis magic smell to me, don't I? But honestly, I sent Isis packing. She doesn't live here anymore. My brother and I are going to bring back Ra. The boat shuddered. The dozen little voices fell silent, as if for the first time in their immortal lives, they were truly and properly stunned. Well, they hadn't met me yet, had they? That would be good, yes, I ventured. Ra back, just like the old times, rolling on the river and so on. We're here to make things happen. But to do that, we need a journey through the houses of the night. If you could just cooperate, a dozen glowing orbs blazed to life. They circled me like an angry swarm of flaming tennis balls. Their heat so intense, I thought they'd combust my new dress. Sadie, Carter warned, they don't look happy. And he wonders why I call him Captain Obvious. I try to remain calm. Behave. I told the light sternly. This isn't for me, it's for Ra. If you want your pharaoh back, you'll man your stations. I thought I'd be roasted like a tandoori chicken, but I stood my ground. Since I was surrounded, I really had no choice. I exerted my magic and tried to bend the lights to my will, the way I might have done to turn someone into a rat or a lizard. You will be helpful, I ordered. You will do your work obediently. There was a collective hiss inside my head, which either meant I'd blown a brain gasket or the lights were relenting. The crew scattered. They took up their stations, hauling lines, mending the sail, manning the unbroken oars, and guiding the tiller. The leaky hull groaned as the boat turned its nose downstream. Carter exhaled. Good job. You okay? I nodded, but my head felt like it was still spinning in circles. I wasn't sure if I'd convinced the orbs or if they were simply biding their time waiting for revenge. Either way, I wasn't thrilled to have put our fate in their hands. We sailed into the dark. The cityscape of London melted away. My stomach got that familiar free-fall sensation as we passed deeper into the duot. We're entering the second house, I guessed. 
Carter grabbed the mask to steady himself. You mean the houses of the night, like best mentioned? What are they, anyway? It felt strange to be explaining Egyptian myths to Carter. I thought he might be teasing me, but he seemed genuinely perplexed. Something I read in the Book of Ra, I said. Each hour of the night is a house. We have to pass through that twelve stages of the river, representing twelve hours of the night. Carter peered into the darkness ahead of us. So if we're in the second house, you mean an hour has already passed? It didn't feel that long. He was right, it didn't. Then again, I had no idea how time flowed in the duet. One house of the night might not correspond exactly to one mortal hour in the world above. Anubis once told me he'd been in the land of the dead for 5,000 years, but he still felt like a teenager, teenager, as if no time had passed. I shuddered. What if we popped out on the other side of the river of night and found that several eons had passed? I just turned 13. I wasn't ready to be 1300. I also wished I hadn't thought of Anubis. I touched the Shen amulet on my necklace. After all that happened with Walt, the idea of seeing Anubis made me feel strangely guilty, but also a bit excited. Perhaps Anubis would help us on our journey. Perhaps he'd whisk me away to some private spot for a chat, as he'd done last time we'd visited the Duat. A romantic little graveyard, dinner for two at the Coffin Cafe. Snap out of it, Sadie, I thought. Concentrate. I pulled the Book of Ra from my bag and scanned the instructions again. I'd read them several times already, but they were cryptic and confusing, much like a math textbook. The scroll was chock full of terms like first from chaos, breathe into clay, the night's flock, reborn in fire, the acres of the sun, the kiss of the knife, the gambler of light, and the last scarab, most of which made no sense to me. I gathered that as we passed through the the 12 stages of the river, I'd have to read the three sections of the Book of Ra at three separate locations, probably to revive the different aspects of the sun god, and each of three aspects would present us with some sort of challenge. I knew that if I failed, if I so much as stumbled over one word while reading the spells, I would end up worse than Vlad Menshikov. The the idea terrified me, but I couldn't dwell on the possibility of failure. I simply had to hope that when the time came, the scroll's gibberish would make sense. The current accelerated. So did the leaking of the boat. Carter demonstrated his combat magic skill by summoning a bucket and bailing out water, while I concentrated on keeping the crew in line. The deeper we sailed into the duat, the more rebellious the glowing orbs became. They chafed against my will, remembering how much they wanted to incinerate me. It's unnerving to float down a magic river with voices whispering in your head, Die, traitor, die! Ever so often, I'd get the feeling we were being followed. I'd turn and think I could see a whitish smudge against the black. 
like the after image of a flash, but I decided it was just my imagination. Even more unnerving was the darkness ahead. No shoreline, no landmarks, no visibility at all. The crew could have steered us straight into a boulder or the mouth of a monster and we would have had absolutely no warning. We just kept sailing through the dark, empty void. Why is it so... Nothing, I murmured. Carter emptied his bucket. He made an odd sight. Boy dressed as a pharaoh with a royal crook and flail, bailing water from a leaky boat. Maybe the houses of the night follow human sleep patterns, he suggested. Human what? Sleep patterns. Mom used to tell us about them before bedtime, remember? I didn't. Then again, I'd only been six when our mom died. She'd been a scientist as well as a magician, and had thought nothing of reading us Newton's Laws or the periodic table as bedtime stories. Most of it had gone over my head, but I wanted to remember. I'd always been irritated that Carter remembered Mom so much better than I did. Sleep has different stages, Carter said. Like... The first few hours, the brain is almost in a coma. A really deep sleep with hardly any dreams. Maybe that's why this part of a river is so dark and formless. Then later in the night, the brain goes through REM, rapid eye movement. That's when dreams happen. The cycles get more rapid and more vivid. Maybe the house of the night follow a pattern like that. It seemed a bit far-fetched to me. Then again, Momodo was told the science and magic weren't mutually exclusive. She'd call them two dialects of the same language. Bast had once told us that there were millions of different channels and tributaries to the Duats River. The geography could change with each journey, responding to the traveler's thoughts. If the river was shaped by all the sleeping minds in the world... If its course got more vivid and crazy as the night went along, then we were in for a rough ride. The river eventually narrowed. A shoreline appeared on either side. Black, volcanic sands sparkling in the lights of our magic crew. The air turned colder. The underside of the boat scraped against rocks and sandbars, which made the leaks worse. Carter gave up on the pail and pulled wax from his supply bag. Together we tried to plug the leaks, speaking binding spells to hold the boat together. If I'd had any chewing gum, I would have used that as well. We didn't pass any signposts. Now entering the third house. Services, next exit. But we'd clearly entered a different section of the river. Time was slipping away at an alarming rate, and we still hadn't done anything. Perhaps the first challenge is boredom, I said. When will something happen? I should have known better than to say that out loud. Right in front of us, a shape loomed out of the darkness. A sandaled foot the size of a waterbed planted itself on the prow of our ship and stepped us dead in the water. It wasn't an attractive foot, either. Definitely male, Its toes were splattered with mud, and its toenails were yellow 
cracked and overgrown. The leather sandal straps were covered in lichens and barnacles. In short, the foot looked and smelled very much like it had been standing on the same rock in the middle of the river, wearing the same sandal for several thousand years. Unfortunately, it was attached to a leg, which was attached to a body. The giant leaned down to look at us. You are bored? His voice boomed. Not in an unfriendly way. I could kill you, if that would help. He wore a kilt like Carter's, except the giant skirt could have supplied enough fabric to make ten ship sails. His body was humanoid and muscular, covered with man fur. The sort of gross body hair that makes me want to start a charity waxing foundation for overly fuzzy men. He had the head of a ram, a white snout with a brass ring in his nose, and long curly horns hung with dozens of bronze bells. His eyes were set far apart with luminous red irises and vertical slits for pupils. I suppose that all sounds rather frightening, but the ram man didn't strike me as devilish. In fact, he looked quite familiar for some reason. He seemed more melancholy than threatening, as if he'd been standing on his little rock in the middle in the island in the middle of the river for so long he'd forgotten why he was there. Carter asked when I became a ram whisperer. Do shut up, Carter. I honestly felt sorry for the ram man. His eyes were full of loneliness. I couldn't believe he would hurt us. Until he drew from his belt two very large knives with curly blades like his horns. You're silent, he noted. Is that a yes for the killing? No thanks, I said, trying to sound grateful for the offer. One word and one question, please. The word is pedicure. The question is, who are you? Ah, <laughs> he said, bleeding like a sheep. If you knew my name, we wouldn't need introductions, and I could let you pass. Unfortunately, no one ever knows my name. A shame, too. I see you found the Book of Ra. You've retrieved his crew and managed to sail his boat to the gates of the fourth house. No one's ever gotten this far before. I'm terribly sorry I have to slice you in pieces. He hefted his knives, one in each hand. Our glowing orbs swarmed in a frenzy, whispering, Yes, slice her. Yes. Just a mo- I called up to the giant. If we name you, we can pass? Naturally, he sighed. But no one ever can. I glanced at Carter. This wasn't the first time we'd been stopped at the River of Night and challenged to a name guardian on pain of death. Apparently, it was quite a common experience for Egyptian souls and magicians passing through the Duat. But I couldn't believe we'd get such an easy test. I was sure now that I recognized the Ram Man. 
We'd seen his statue in the Brooklyn Museum. It's him, isn't it? I asked Carter. The chap who looks like Bullwinkle. Don't call him Bullwinkle, Carter hissed. He looked up at the giant ram man and said, You're Kanum, aren't you? The ram man made a rumbling, deep sound in his throat. He scraped one of his knives against the ship's rail. Is that a question, or is that your final answer? Carter blinked. Um, not our final answer, I yelped, realizing that we'd almost stepped into a trap. Not even close. Kanum is your common name, isn't it? You want us to say your true name, your Wren. Kanum tilted his head, the bells on his horns jingling. That would be nice, but alas, no one knows it. And I have forgotten. Even I. How can you forget your own name? Carter asked. And yes, that's a question. I am part of Ra, said the Ram God. I am his aspect in the underworld, a third of his personality. But when Ra stopped making his nightly journey, he no longer needed me. He left me here at the gates of the fourth house, discarded like an old coat. Now I guard the gates. I have no other purpose. If I could recover my name, if I could yield my spirit to whoever frees me, they could reunite me with Ra, but until then, I cannot leave this place. He sounded horribly depressed, like a little lost sheep or rather a 10-meter-tall lost sheep with very large knives. I wanted to help him. Even more than that, I wanted to find a way not to get myself sliced to bits. If you don't remember your name, I said, why couldn't we just tell you any old name? How would you know whether it was the right answer or not? Kanum let his knives trail in the water. I hadn't thought of that. Carter glared at me as if to say, Why did you tell him? The ram god bleated. I think I will know my wren when I hear it, he decided, though I cannot be sure. Being only part of Ra, I am not sure of much. I've lost most of my memories, most of my power and identity. I am no more than a husk of my former self. Your former self must have been enormous, I muttered. The god might have smiled, though it was hard to tell with the ram face. I'm sorry you don't have my wren. You're a bright girl. You're the first to make it this far. The first and the best. He sighed forlornly. Ah, well, I suppose we should get to the killing. The first and the best. My mind started racing. Wait, I said. I know your name. Carter yelped. You do? Tell him. I thought of a line from the Book of Ra. First from Chaos. I drew on the memories of Isis, the only goddess who had ever known Ra's secret name, 
and I began to understand the nature of the sun god. Ra was the first god to rise out of chaos, I said. Kanum frowned. That's my name. No, just listen, I said. You said you're not complete without Ra, just a husk of your former self. But that's true of all of the other Egyptian gods as well. Ra is older, more powerful. He's the original source of Mat. Like, like the taproot of the gods, Carter volunteered. Right, I said. I have no idea what a taproot is, but right. All these eons, the other gods have been slowly fading, losing power because Ra is missing. They might not admit it, but he's their heart. They're dependent on him. All this time, we've been wondering if it was worth it to bring back Ra. We didn't know why it was so important, but now I understand. Carter nodded, slowly warming to the idea. Ra's the center of Mopt. He has to come back if the gods are going to win. And that's why Apophis wants to bring back Ra, I guessed. The two are connected, Mot and Chaos. If Apophis can swallow Ra while the sun god is old and weak, all the gods die, Carter said. The world crumbles into chaos. Kanum turned his head so that he could study me with one glowing red eye. That's all quite interesting, he said, but I'm not hearing my secret name. To wake Ra, you must first name me. I opened the book of Ra and took a deep breath. I began to read the first part of the spell. Now, you may be thinking, gosh, Sadie, your big test was to read some words off a scroll? What's so hard about that? If you think that, you've clearly never read a spell. Imagine reading aloud on stage in front of a thousand hostile teachers who are waiting to give you bad marks. Imagine you can only read by looking at the backward reflection in a mirror. Imagine all the words are mixed around and you have to put the sentence together in the right order as you go. Imagine if you make one mistake, one stumble, one mispronunciation, you'll die. Imagine doing all that at once and you'll have some idea what it's like to cast a spell from a scroll. Despite that, I felt strangely confident. The spell suddenly made sense. I name you first from chaos, I said. Kanum, who is Ra, the evening sun, I summon your Ba to awaken the Great One. For I am my first near-fatal mistake. The scroll said something like, insert your name here. And I almost read it aloud that way. For I am insert your name here. Well, it would have been an honest mistake. Instead, I managed to say, I am Sadie Kane, restorer of the throne of fire. I name you Breath into Clay the ram of night's flock, the divine. I almost lost it again. I was sure the Egyptian title said the divine pooter, but that made no sense. Unless Kanum had magic powers I didn't want to know about.
Thankfully, I remembered something from the Brooklyn Museum. Canoom had been depicted as a potter sculpting a human from clay. The divine potter, I corrected myself. I name you, Canoom, protector of the fourth gate. I return your name. I return your essence to Ra. The god's eyes dilated. His nostrils flared. Yes. He sheathed his knives. Well done, my lady. You may pass into the fourth house. But beware the fires and be prepared for the second form of Ra. He will not be so grateful for your help. What do you mean? I asked. But the ram god's body dissolved into mist. The book of Ra sucked in the wisps of smoke and it rolled shut. Canoom and his island were gone. The boat drifted on into a narrower tunnel. Sadie, Carter said. That was amazing. Normally, I would have been happy to astonish him with my brilliance, but my heart was racing. My hands were sweating, and I thought I might throw up. On top of that, I could feel the glowing orb crew coming out of their shock, beginning to fight me again. No slice, they complained. No slice. Mind your own business, I thought back at them. Keep the boat going. Um, Sadie, why is your face turning red? I thought he was accusing me of blushing. Then I realized he too was red. The whole boat was awash in ruby light. I turned to look ahead of us, and I made a sound in my throat not too different from Canoom's bleeding. Oh no, I said. Not this place again. Roughly a hundred meters ahead of us, the tunnel opened into a huge cavern. I recognized the massive boiling lake of fire, but the last time I hadn't been, I hadn't seen it from this, this angle. We were picking up speed, heading down a series of rapids like a water slide. At the end of the rapids, the water turned into a fiery waterfall and dropped straight down into the lake about half a mile below. We were hurtling toward the precipice with absolutely no way to stop. Keep the boat going, the crew whispered with glee. Keep the boat going. We probably had less than a minute, but it seemed longer. I suppose if time flies when you're having fun, it really creeps when you're hurtling toward your death. We've got to turn around, Carter said. Even if that wasn't fire, we'll never survive the drop. He began yelling at the, orb, the orbs of light. Turn around! Paddle! Mayday! They happily ignored him. I stared at the flaming drop to oblivion in the lake of fire below. Despite the waves of heat rolling over us like dragon breath, I felt cold. I realized what needed to happen. Reborn in fire, I said. What? Carter asked. It's a line from the Book of Ra. We can't turn around. We have to go over straight into the lake. Are you crazy? We'll burn up. I ripped open my magic bag and rummaged through my supplies. We have to take the ship through the fire. That was part of the sun's nightly rebirth, right? Ra would have done it. 
Ra wasn't flammable. The waterfall was only 20 meters away now. My hands trembled as I poured ink into my writing palette. If you've never tried to use a calligraphy set while standing up on a boat, it isn't easy. What are you doing? Carter asked. Writing your will? I took a deep breath and dipped my stylus in black ink. I visualized the hieroglyphs I needed. I wish Zia were with us. Not just because we had hit it off rather well in Cairo. Oh, stop pouting, Carter. It's not my fault she realized I'm the brilliant one in the family. But because Zia was an expert with fire glyphs, and that's just what we needed. Push up your hair, I told Carter. I need to paint your forehead. I'm not plunging to my death with loser painted on my head. I'm trying to save you. Hurry. He pushed his hair out of the way. I painted the glyph for fire and shield on his forehead, and immediately my brother burst into flame. I know, it was like a dream come true and a nightmare all at once. He danced around, spewing some very creative curse words before realizing that the fire wasn't hurting him. He was simply encased in a protective sheet of flames. What exactly? His eyes widened. Hold on to something. The boat tipped sickeningly over the edge of the falls. I dashed the hieroglyphs onto the back of my hand, but it wasn't a good copy. The flames spluttered weakly around me. Alas, I didn't have time for anything better. I wrapped my arms around the rail, and we plummeted straight down. Strange how many things can go through your mind as you fall to certain doom. From up high, the lake of fire looked quite beautiful, like the surface of the sun. I wondered if I would feel any pain on impact or if we would simply evaporate. It was hard to see anything as we plummeted through the ash and smoke, but I thought I spotted a familiar island about a mile away, the Black Temple, where I'd first met Anubis. I wondered if he could see me from there and if he would rush to my rescue. I wondered if my chances of survival would be better if I pushed away from the boat and fell like a cliff diver, but I couldn't make myself do it. I held onto the rail with all my might. I wasn't sure if the magical fire shield was protecting me, but I was sweating fiercely, and I was fairly certain I'd left my throat and most of my internal organs on the top of the waterfall. Finally, we hit bottom with an understated whoom. How to describe the sensation of plunging into a lake of liquid fire? Well, it burned. And yet, it was somehow wet, too. I didn't dare breathe. After a moment's hesitation, I opened my eyes. All I could see were swirling red and yellow flames. We were still underwater. Or under fire? I realized two things. I was not burning to death, and the boat was moving forward. I couldn't believe my crazy protection glyphs had actually worked. As the boat slid through the swirling currents of heat, the voices of the crew whispered in my mind, more joyful than angry now. Renew, they said. New life, new light. That sounded promising until I grasped some less pleasant facts. 
I still couldn't breathe. My body liked breathing. Also, it was getting much hotter. I could feel my protection glyph failing, the ink burning against my hand. I reached out blindly and grabbed an arm. Carter's, I assume. We held hands, and even though I couldn't see him, it was comforting to know he was there. Perhaps it was my imagination, but the heat seemed to lessen. Long ago, Amos had told us that we were more magical, more powerful together. We increased each other's magic just by being in proximity. I hope that was true now. I tried to send my thoughts to Carter, urging him to help me maintain the fire shield. The ship sailed on through the flames. I thought we were starting to ascend, but it might have been wishful thinking. My vision began to go dark. My lungs were screaming. If I inhaled fire, I wondered if I would end up like Vlad Menshikov. Just when I knew I would pass out, the boat surged upward and we broke the surface. I gasped, and not just because I needed the air. We had docked at the shoreline of the boiling lake in front of a large limestone gateway, like the entrance to an ancient temple I'd seen at Luxor. I was still holding Carter's hand. As far as I could tell, we were both fine. The sunboat was better than fine. It had been renewed. Its sail gleamed white, the symbol of the sun shining gold in its center. The oars were repaired and newly polished. The paint was freshly lacquered black and green and gold. The hull no longer leaked, and the tent house was once more a beautiful pavilion. There was no throne and no Ra, but the crew glowed brightly and cheerfully as they tied off the lines to the dock. I couldn't help it. I threw my arms around Carter and let out a sob. Are you all right? He pulled back awkwardly and nodded. The glyph on his forehead had burned off. Thanks to you, he said. Where? Sunny Acres, said a familiar voice. Bess came down the steps to the dock. He wore a new, even louder Hawaiian shirt and only a Speedo for pants, so I can't say he was a sight for sore eyes. Now that he was in the duot, he fairly glowed with power. His hair had turned darker and curlier, and his face looked decades younger. Bess, I said, what took you so long? Are Walt and Zia? They're fine, he said, and I told you I'd meet you at the fourth house. He jabbed his thumb at the sign carved into the limestone archway. It used to be called the House of Rest. Apparently, they've changed the name. The sign was in hieroglyphs, but I had no trouble reading it. Sunny Acres Assisted Living Community, I read. Formerly the House of Rest, under new management. What exactly? We should get going, Beth said, before your stalker arrives. Stalker? Carter asked. Bess pointed to the top of the fiery waterfall, now a good half mile away. At first I didn't see anything. Then there was a streak of white against the red flames, as if a man in an ice cream suit had plunged into the lake. A 
Apparently, I hadn't imagined that white smudge in the darkness. We were being followed. Menshikov? I asked. That's... that's... Bad news, Beth said. Now come on. We have to find the sun god.